Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Good afternoon, everybody. Dr. Rob Dixon here for another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. And today uh, I have Kevin Crocker here, our clinical lead. Hello, everybody. And Andy Adams is always on the boards doing our technical guru work. And today's guest is Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Dr. Jarvis uh, is a longtime friend of ours and a uh, medical director from Williamson County EMS. Uh, Jeff actually has a really neat backstory. He was a paramedic for Williamson County and then rose to go to medical school and become the medical director of their service and uh, is uh, well-published uh, on lots of different uh, boards around the state in leadership uh, roles for EMS and, and EM. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much. Longtime friend, first-time caller. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we had Jeff on. We're going to talk about a couple of things today, but we really wanted to start off, you know, I have your the copy of your annals paper here and I wanted to start off talking about uh, clinical bundles and delayed sequence intubation uh, can you give us a little bit of the backstory about how you became interested in this clinical topic and and enough to, to kind of the progression of how you got to the, the paper absolutely so the, our interest in this was it was kind of unfortunate actually we had been paying really close attention to first pass six intubation success for a while and published a different paper on the use of uh, video laryngoscopy instead of direct laryngoscopy. So we'd been paying really close attention to that. Well, we had a couple of Sentinel events where I think, and I blame myself for this, our attention to first pass success let us get tunnel visioned on the importance of putting the tube in and blinded us to the physiologic implications of what's going on when you're putting the tube in. So the case we had was a, um, I would have said elderly until I turned 50, and now I'm inclined to say middle-aged. Welcome uh, to the club. Exactly. She was uh, in her 60s, had lots of chronic medical conditions, uh, was getting progressively hypoxic. We decided to intubate. We went with our typical RSI approach. We gave ketamine. We gave, um, and I don't remember whether you're using sucks or rock at the time, is whichever one we could get, and put the patient down, went to uh, get the intubation, and wouldn't you know it, the next thing we know, I guess just a function of her being terribly sick, she went into cardiac arrest. Uh, we aborted the intubation attempt after about three minutes. Uh, someone We started CPR. Uh, someone else hopped in, intubated the patient, and miraculously she got pulses back. And we initially thought, well, you know, we intubate sick people, and sometimes sick people will go into cardiac arrest. Well, then we went back and we looked at the second-by-second -second data that we collect on every every time we turn the monitor on. And what we noticed is uh, the patient was hypoxic when we began the intubation attempt, and she rapid the curve on her oxygen saturation just dropped off the, the face of a mountain. So she desaturated really, really rapidly. Her heart rate was initially in the 110s, 120s. Blood pressure was in the you know 110s. Her heart rate, um, as her sats dropped, ultimately I think they got down to around 20, which is impressive considering you know room air is 21%. You have to really work to get below that. 
sats dropped really quickly, her heart rate dropped really quickly, and she went into cardiac arrest. So it dawned on us looking at that file that this wasn't something that just happened. We didn't have any control over it. This was something we caused to happen. We This was an iatrogenic cardiac arrest. Then the next, as bad as that made me feel, the next step was to say, well, is this a one-off or is this happening again and again. And I started looking at our data and I started looking at the literature. Um, And actually one of my co-authors, John Gonzalez, who's one of our commanders here, um, was looking into our data while I was looking into the literature. And what he he found just by going back uh, several times, uh, so say a year, year and a half, he found three additional peri-intubation cardiac arrest that we can directly attribute to hypoxia. Looking at the literature, uh, Mort has a great paper on this, uh, the rate of cardiac peri-intubation cardiac arrest from hypoxic bradycardic arrest is between 2 and 4% in the literature. Uh, and that's roughly what ours came to look at. So what I realized was that, yeah, we may be getting the tube in the right hole, but the patient is suffering in the process, and that's not what any of us signed up for. So I said, okay, this is a real issue. We need to get the tube in the right hole on the first try and make sure the patient doesn't become hypoxic. Let's see what the literature says about what some of the things that we can do are that can uh, prevent that. And from that, we ended up with this clinical bundle. And I'll kind of go through what the key components of this clinical bundle are. Now, so the the main things are we do, we elevate the head, so it's positioning. We elevate the head, put them in a sniffing position with ear to sternal notch. We use apneic oxygenation before and after the intubation. We use delayed sequence intubation, and we can talk about all these later, and we use what I call goal-directed pre-oxygenation. Um, so those are the four components of the bundle, positioning, apneic oxygenation, DSI, and goal-directed pre-oxygenation. Now, as with any quality improvement effort, if you're going to the extent of doing this, you really need to know whether you're making an improvement or not. So the key thing we were looking at, the metric we were looking at, was the proportion of patients with peri-intubation hypoxia. In our before group, where we went back retrospectively and looked at the data, we had 44% of all of our intubations And this is not in dead people, by the way, so we've excluded cardiac arrest, so let's be clear about that. These are only uh, what we would have otherwise called an RSI. 44% of those intubations had hypoxia, and with the bundle, 3.5%, and that was a statistically significant reduction, and I think it was clinically significant as well. Yeah, that's fantastic data. You know, we, uh, in all uh, honesty, we actually listened to a lecture at Dr. Jarvis's. Our chief of service, Jared Cosper, and I were at uh, Pinnacle a couple of years ago. We heard Dr. Jarvis actually tell this backstory on how he got involved in the clinical bundle and avoiding hypoxemia during the intubation. And I asked our chief then, and I had just come on to the as medical director for the service, you know, where, where are our skeletons and start looking for them. So with that, I wanted to bring in Kevin Crocker as our quality lead. And, and Kevin actually did a lot of the background research on how we were performing as a service uh, at the time. And then we actually kind of stole your, your bundle and implemented it here and what our follow-up data is. Yeah, so we, uh, we are indeed uh, Dr. Jarvis's hard work, which we're pretty proud of, and we appreciate him doing the the foundation groundwork for that. Uh, so we did kind of a, a retrospective six-month review uh, when Dr. Dixon got back from Dr. Jarvis's talk and just to see where we were and if we had skeletons in the closet. And we found that we're not performing quite where we wanted to be. So for us, uh, you had about 44% nice. of your patients who had a hypoxic event. We had about 30% who had a hypoxic event. 
And after we implemented the clinical bundle, it went down to 8%. So we had a pretty significant decrease uh, in the percentage of patients who had a hypoxic episode during RSI as well. So, uh, And then also we tracked uh, first, att first attempt success rate uh, prior to, and we were 78%. And once we implemented the bundle, our first attempt success rate actually went up to 93%. Great. And Jeff, can you talk a little bit about, you know, this is a big paradigm shift for emergency physicians and for medics and, and EMS services. Can you talk about some of those obstacles in implementing a, a bundle like this into any, any organization, whether it be ED or an EMS medicine ser service? Absolutely. So this is, you know, it's something different, even though it probably shouldn't be. There's nothing earth-shaking in this bundle. We all know that these are the things that we're supposed to do. And essentially, if you go back and look at it, we're saying you should pre-oxygenate your patients well. You should fully denitrogenate your patients. You should do the things that we know you need to do in order to, um, to intubate. I think where the controversy comes in is with my goal-directed pre-oxygenation and with the DSI. There's not a whole lot of argument about positioning. There are medics who will say, that's a pain, I don't want to do it. But there's not much controversy that that is a good thing. There is some controversy on apneic oxygenation. Um, I think that's primarily people wanting to argue, uh, and they're confounding two things. Uh, they're saying, well, apneic oxygenation doesn't replace pre-oxygenation. It's not supposed to. It's an adjunct to it. The resistance that we get from hospitals, well, let me, let me break this down and say, Let's do resistance to our paramedics first. Um, I was really, really worried that our paramedics wouldn't buy into this. So when we rolled it out, I had a really good idea how common this problem was. Uh, John Gonzalez had a really good idea how common this problem was because we had looked at the data, and we were absolutely convinced with it. The medics that were involved in that Sentinel event that I told you about, and by the way, I want to be clear, those are good medics. Um, this was not a... Um, a case where we just had bad medics, we need to fire them and move on. Um, the problem is they were good medics working in a good system, and we still allowed this to happen. So I think I'd take as much ownership in this error as anyone else. We needed to change the system. So knowing that, I struggled with how to roll this out. And the way I rolled it out was during one of what we call our shift tracks, where we bring everybody in the system uh, in. We do it over two episodes a day, over three days, so we get all of the shifts. And we do these four times a year. So we brought them all in, and I gave a presentation, and I put the PowerPoint up, and I went over about six or eight cases where we had the graphs of the second-by-second second biometric data, including pulse oximetry, heart rate, and blood pressure for these intubations. And I would present the patient and show them the intubation. And I said, this is something that happened here. We did this collectively. Somebody in this room was taking care of this patient. They didn't see this happen, but it happened anyway. And I hit it hard. And about halfway through the number of cases that I had intended to present, the first time I gave this, I realized I was hitting it too hard and needed to back off. There were people crying in the room because they realized that this is not what they signed up for. They were trying to help people and instead were hurting them. Um, so I think that we got the buy-in really rapidly by showing them the data and making it very clear about what that was. I think we had really good buy-in with our medics. There were still some who were saying, well, this is a pain. But what I did was say, you're right. It would be easier just to throw the tube in. But when we signed up for this, we didn't sign up to have an easy job. We signed up to take care of patients. So let's keep this focused on, on patients. So that seemed to be something that they were um, 
they bought into. We had a couple of holdouts that were like, nah, my way's better. And at some point, this is the you know, the advantage we have in Texas, certainly, is I said, well, I understand that, but I'm the medical director and you're going to do it this way. Um, I have data that shows that we're better like this. And now I think we have pretty good buy-in. I don't know that there are really a whole lot of people saying we need to do something else. Yeah, I think in our yeah in our system, we had, I feel like we had great buy-in because you'd already done the legwork on it. We had the data uh, and I think your your paper that you published is just icing on the cake, and you're going to see more and more of this in not only EMS agencies, but in, in the hospital. You know, I work clinically at a big teaching hospital, and I struggle to get a lot of the residents to follow this lead. Uh, this is something that I, I was trained in. I thought I came out of a really good residency, was trained well, and that, you know, it now that it seems so simple now, this clinical bundle, that forever we've been doing this wrong. And I can't tell you how many success stories I've heard from our providers of patients who historically they would have pushed succinylcholine and intubated straight up without getting the SATs up first. But with this new bundle, how successful they felt like they've been and how, how much better they're providing care to those patients and not having those hypoxic episodes. Yeah, and our, I mean, we're seeing a, a big uh, bump in our first pass success because the bundle gets people to slow down, think about avoiding hypoxemia, but it, it, it just kind of puts a, a nice slowdown into the process to allow them to get their backups ready, to, to think about those uh, proper positioning, proper equipment choices, and things like that that are going to make them more successful. You know, it's interesting. I actually looked at the attempt duration also, and what we found, uh, looking at median numbers, the means were much more impressive, but means are always a little misleading. Looked at the median numbers, the median duration of intubation with our RSI package was two minutes with an IQR interquartile range of one to three. And uh, with DSI, it was one minute with a IQR of one to two. So we actually cut the duration of intubation in half by prolonging the process. And I said, well, that's kind of an odd thought. And then uh, I thought a little about it and I talked to my medics and they said, no, we actually think that we're faster because we slowed down. And as with many things, if you practice um, very mindfully, you're really thinking about what you're doing and you're taking your time setting it up, the actual procedure itself goes faster. So I, I think that that's something you see fairly often. Yeah, that's a very common story we hear here at MCHD. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the resistance that we see in the hospital, and we absolutely do see that. Um, yeah, that's where I was going next. You know, where where is this going? I know you're you're preaching the gospel to a lot of hospitals and EMS services around the country. Um where, where do you see this going, and, and where do you see the resistance in this? You know, I think a lot of medical practice now is being driven. It's always been driven by the literature, but the gap between us knowing something and showing it rather definitively in the literature and it actually being adopted into practice is somewhere around 7 to 10 years. And that's, you know, deeply disturbing to all of us, but that's the truth. And I'm talking here about that has been studied in physicians. I don't know that it's been studied in paramedics, but I can't imagine it's any different. Um, a lot of that is changing now in this area of social media and free open access medical education. So now some of the leaders in the FOMED movement, uh, particularly Scott Weingart with his MCRIT podcast, uh, he was the person who really coined the term delayed sequence intubation. He's pushing that. Uh, you're hearing more and more episodes on uh, for MRAP, for example, which is a uh, continuing medical education uh, subscription-based podcast for emergency physicians that um, has a huge penetration. We're seeing 
uh, editorials in ASEP News and whatever the, the other throwaways are uh, that physicians read. So you're seeing that pushed out. You're seeing people lecture on this at physician conferences. So hopefully you're going to start seeing it uh, catch on in emergency departments also. The other issue is that EMS frequently leads practice. So Rob, I don't know about you, but the last time I did an intubation in the emergency department, I insisted on waveform capnography. And RT looks at me and says, why do you need that? I have this little color metric thing. And I, you know, threw a little hissy fit and took a couple of deep breaths and okay, they found the waveform capnography. So we have it in the hospital, just nobody uses it. Whereas EMS brings in patients, everybody has capnography on. And I think that's appropriate. So that's driving the utilization of capnography in the emergency department backboards. Uh, you know, we're not really backboarding everybody anymore. And now they're realizing oh, well, it's not like we're putting them on backboards either, so maybe that's an okay thing. So I think the pressure from EMS is going to drive this as a concept, and I think the pressure from conferences and free open access medical education is going to drive it also. Yeah, I would agree, and I, I hope uh, that your timeline is, is wrong on this one. I, I fear it's probably right, and we see that in lots of other topics that are new to medicine, whether that be uh, temperature regulation and cardiac arrest, whether the new advances in stroke therapy, uh, different things like that. So uh, keep keep preaching the gospel for us. What I think from a quality side is interesting too, because I think most EMS services are using second-by-second second data collection now, so it's easy on the quality side to, to look back at the case and see how things actually played out. Uh, I'm not sure many hospitals are, are doing that internally. Yeah, and the metrics, I mean, let's, let's delve into the metrics sure. for a second, Jeff. I mean, I, I look at you as kind of a metric-driven guru. Can you talk a little bit about the products you use? And, you know, is there a great product up there for the back end to, to make it easy to, for medical directors and, and uh, clinical chiefs to review these cases and, and get to this data? Absolutely. So the short answer is no. Um, there's not a really readily available product. So, one, you said... Uh, you're feeling that most EMS agencies are doing this now, and man, I wish that were true, but I just don't think it is. I think the vast majority of EMS agencies have their head in the sand and are just fat, dumb, and happy in their ignorance, uh, much like I was up to about a year and a half ago. I, I think we really have to focus on turning the rock over and looking at what's underneath that rock, peeling the onion back, even if you realize that you're going to see some dirty things. And the truth is, is without seeing them, you can't do anything to address them. Uh, and I absolutely agree, hospitals are not doing this. The only place they can do it, the Drager machines record it. Nobody goes back and looks at it. And honestly, I don't think many people know how to do it. Um, the places that I've seen in the literature where they do it are the same places where they're looking at uh, first-pass success, first-pass success without hypoxia or hypotension. They're driven from a research standpoint, and in those places, they're starting to do it. So having said that, let me tell you about our what our stack is, what the way we approach this. Uh, we use Philip monitors. Um, probably the best uh, cardiac boat anchor out there. I, I wish I could have some faith that we would be using this in six months. They've certainly had some problems, but the monitor itself records the the second-by-second second data. And the truth is, is that the physio and the Zoles do it also. Where I think Philips helps um, a little bit is their review software. So Event Review Pro will allow us to look at multiple channels and look at graph out the pulse oximetry, entitled CO2, heart rate, all of these other things. Um, I think CodeStat from Physio will do that. Um, I have tried and tried and tried with the Zoll software and have not been able to do it outside of cardiac arrest. 
Um, I am told uh, by the Zoll people that their new cloud-based product can do it. I just haven't seen it yet. So the process that we go by, the, the metric we're looking at now, we're transitioning from first-pass success to first-pass success without hypotension or hypoxia. And the way we generate that metric is we look at each intubation attempt. And again, we're excluding cardiac arrest in here because you kind of need perfusion to be able to see your, your hypoxia values. So we look at each non-cardiac arrest intubation, meaning we didn't intubate them because they were in cardiac arrest. If they coded during the intubation, then we absolutely include that. So it's a manual review process of the, the graphs that Event Review Pro makes for us. And we define what the starting saturation was, what the lowest saturation was during the intubation attempt, and what the final intubation saturation was. And we define the intubation as the time they stopped breathing to the time that they ventilations were resumed. And our definition of that is driven by entitled CO2. So the time when we lost waveform capnography to the time it was resumed. And then we combine that with the data from the chart to know when we push the drugs um, to, to get in that right area. So our metric then is all patients that underwent non-cardiac arrest intubation. That's the denominator. The numerator is the number that had a first-pass success without hypoxia defined as the nadir being uh, 90 or less is peri-intubation hypoxia. And they did not become hypotensive. So that's the metric we're, we're trying to generate. Because it's a manual process, we're a little slow in, in um, institutionalizing this. Now, incidentally, this wasn't reported in the clinical bundle because we had not implemented it yet. Um, I knew we were going to when we implemented this initially. The goal direction was do not intubate hypoxic patients. Fix the hypoxia first, then intubate. I didn't include as a part of the initial rollout, oh, by the way, don't intubate uh, hypotensive patients either because I didn't want to overwhelm people. We knew we were going to do it the following year. The following year has come and gone, and now you have to fix the pulse oximetry level, but you also have to fix the systolic blood pressure. And we do that in all the normal ways, fluids, uh, pressors if we need to, or if we're doing it right around the time of intubation and don't have time to muck with um, uh, pressure, uh, pressor infusion like norepinephrine, we'll do push-dose epi to get the systolic blood pressure above 100. Yeah, that's fantastic. Actually, we are rolling that out, a push-dose epinephrine protocol for to avoid this and add that to our clinical bundle as well. So that's fantastic, Jeff. Well, Kevin, let me. this may be a question for you. Um, how do y'all measure it? Are y'all, what monitors are you using and what software are you using to uh, to track this? So we use the Zoll monitors and we use the Zoll code review on okay. the back end to review. And it's a manual process. So every one of the RSIs is reviewed by a member of the clinical team, uh, and we look at those on the second-by-second second data. So there's not like an aggregate process that the, the software does for us. It's a manual process, which sounds similar to what you guys are doing. Is that correct? Yeah, so we get the information on a case-by-case -case basis, and then I built a access database. So we transpose that, abstract it out, and put it into access for our aggregate numbers. So I'm interested, though. You said you're doing it with Zoll. We weren't able to figure out how to do it. I may have to pick your brain and see how we can get those graphs. Sure, absolutely. That's good to know. So I think all three vendors can do it, which means there's not much of an excuse for uh, EMS agencies not to be looking into this. That reminds me of uh, one of my favorite movie quotes from uh, a great, great classic movie, Hitch, with Will Smith, where he says, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? You've got to look at the data. You've got to be on top of that and monitoring your, your system's performance. Absolutely. And I think that's key to it. Absolutely. you got to monitor it if you want to improve it. And that's a great comment to wrap it up on. Uh, guys, uh, for all of our listeners out there, you can 
find a summary of today's talk uh, and the link to uh, Dr. Jarvis's paper in the show notes. Again, uh, we really appreciate Dr. Jarvis coming on and sharing his insights and his expertise in uh, this uh, clinic developing this clinical bundle, where it came from, and where he thinks it's going. Jeff, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, y'all. I appreciate it. This was fun. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.